Welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Drew Evans. And I'm Ben Garmo. Well, we are so glad to be back on the podcast. It's been a little bit of a hiatus. As you all know, both Ben and I have been leading busy lives, but we are so glad to be back. And we are joined by someone who's been on the podcast before and someone we are so glad to have back on. We have the one, the only, Ria Lakaraju of Emory Mock Trial. Ria, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. I'm so glad I'm considered a one and only now. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. <laughs> Well, it is awesome to hear your voice. It's awesome to be, you know, back on the podcast in general. I feel like I haven't been doing mock trial things in so long, so it's just good to be back and talk about some. Been a uh, little busy, right? I mean, some of you've been doing things. I've been doing some law school things, and you know, that's that's all fine and dandy. Um, I avoided a hurricane for a few weeks. You know, it's it's all good. <laughs> um, but uh, okay, let's let's get right into you know talking about why we're here. So I want to start by kind of giving a preview of we're going to talk about some of the tournaments that we've had so far. And by nature of the structure of this kind of fall season, we've had some in-person tournaments, some virtual tournaments. And because of the wisdom of the gods that run this podcast, we decided to have Ben, who has been to only virtual tournaments, and Rhea, who has been to only on only in-person tournaments, both here to talk about uh, what their experiences have been and kind of get a sense of what the differences are and how that's been. So with that being said, Ben, I'm going to start with you. What tournaments have you been to and how has the online experience been this season? So uh, UMBC has done two tournaments so far. We are recording this the evening of October 24th. And last weekend, we hosted our very own Charm City Classic. We had two of our teams. We have three unstacked teams right now. We had two of our unstacked teams there. And then just a couple hours before we're recording this episode, we finished up with our third unstacked team at the Colonial Classic, hosted by the fine folks at William & Mary. Uh, So both tournaments have been excellent in terms of the way things have been run. Um, You know, not to brag, but Charm City has kind of always run that way. And so, like, you know, I was happy that it worked out that way again. Everything ran on time and was great. Colonial Classic was very similar. They always run a really tight ship there. Um, we usually actually usually don't get to go there because usually we host on the same weekend, but this year we were thrilled to get to come back. Um, this is where things get less positive for me. And I'll be very interested to hear how jealous I am of Rhea's experience. Uh, because <laughs> let me preface this by saying, I think virtual mock trial is really important from an accessibility perspective. I think it's so important, uh, from that perspective and from an equity perspective that we're continuing to support that as the pandemic is ongoing, even if maybe things are seemingly starting to improve again, still really important. Uh, I try to be really honest on this podcast. So I'll be honest that I'm, I'm sick of virtual mock trial. Um, I get it. It's worked out for us pretty well, but uh, I'm just, I'm really done with it. Uh, I'm really ready to get back on the road, which we are actually doing this upcoming weekend. We'll have a team at Tufts at the Mumbo Jumbo Invitational. And I'm so, so excited to be doing that. So I get the sense right now that virtual mock trial is serving a really important role, but a lot of teams I think are similar to us where we're just kind of ready to switch it back up and head back to in-person for as much as we can. And I know we're going to talk later in the episode about, okay, what are some of the challenges of how that's going to work, especially with the AMTA season. But I just, you know, it's been a positive experience in that a lot of my new members have gotten a chance to compete my teams have done reasonably well. It, you know, it's been good from that perspective. 
but I'm just ready to get back to the in-person experience. And I'm looking forward to doing that very soon. You know, Ben, before I go to Ria, one thing that I've been kind of wondering about this, you know, you have a lot of new members on that team that this is their only experience with mock trial. They've never done in-person mock trial. Do you think that they are, you know, I mean, I don't want you to speak for them, but from talking to them, do you get the sense that they are enjoying mock trial less than you think they would have had they been doing it in person? And I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, do we think there's ever going to be a, like a important help to having some virtual tournaments that lower the cost of, of competing, that allow people that wouldn't ordinarily have been able to, to do it. And maybe we say, yeah, we know it's not in-person mock trial, but maybe it's almost its own separate thing where, again, for those groups that can't do in-person mock trial, it's still fun and it's still great for them. And for those of us that have done in-person mock trial and say, oh, it's nothing like the real thing they don't have that. Maybe they really do enjoy just doing it online. And I don't know what you think of that, Ben. Well, first of all, I think I know how our guests feel when I ask them four questions in one question. Um, and it's it's good to be on the other end of that for once. Um, but I I think actually those are all really, really good questions. And my thinking for that is, my, my short answer to that question is, no, it's not the same. It's not as much fun. Uh, but that might be because of the things that I value. I'm a person who likes to travel. I'm a person who really enjoys being on the road. I like driving the team van. I like getting to know my students and sort of building that trust and camaraderie from coach to student. I think it's part of the reason why I've been successful as a coach. But I, I think I have been relatively consistent on this on this podcast about preaching things related to accessibility and equity and inclusion in our community. And we've learned a lot about those topics uh, during the pandemic you know, for a variety of different reasons. And if we don't take those lessons and implement them for the future, uh, then we're really, you know, we're doing a disservice. And by we, I mean the community, but specifically AMTA and the board of directors, we'd be doing a disservice to our community. You think back to the episode we did with South Carolina Aiken, and I had never even considered before uh, recording with them, the possibility of teams traveling with young children just wasn't a thing. I've never experienced it in terms of tournaments that I've been to, uh, but they can't be the only team out there who has maybe some non-traditional students or second career students uh, or teams that have challenges with funding. Um, and, and I guess my wrap up point on this issue is one of the things that we don't talk about a lot in this community is things like team safety, things like Hey, is it a good idea for, you know, 21-year-olds to drive a van through the night, which I know happens for for teams around the country. And so hopefully this can open up a discussion and a consideration of uh all right, we have this other way of doing mock trial instead of forcing teams to travel, you know, 14, 16 hours to get to good tournaments, maybe we can still allow this to continue in the future in some form or another. So I don't have a great answer to that second question, but I do think that while I hope that we continue to transition back to in-person and I hope that when we get to January, February, March, we are back to almost entirely in-person, I think virtual's got to play some role moving forward. And that conversation is going to be a really interesting one. All right. Well, I think that we've talked a lot about the you know, online side of things. Ria, I want to go to you now and hear a little bit about the wonderful world of in-person mock trial, or maybe not so wonderful, but what of what tournaments has Emery been to or that you've been to? And what's your experience been like at those, Ria? Absolutely. So uh, Emery is competing 
I think pretty much exclusively in person um, the entire year. So we're not doing any virtual invites this year. Um, We've been to uh, quite a few tournaments so far already, actually. So we hosted our own. uh, We hosted Peach Bowl um, on October 9th and 10th, which was, I think, actually the first in-person tournament of the entire year, which was super fun um, and a lot of really, really uh, great return to the in-person season. So it was great to see that happening again. Um, I've... I actually just went to UGA's tournament this past weekend, which was also here in Atlanta. Um, I just got back uh, from that about an hour ago, so that's crazy timing. Um, so that was also in person. I was at FSU's tournament um, just last weekend um, or shortly before that. Uh, and then we have, you know, people coming to Duke's tournament. Uh, so we we have a pretty good range of in-person tournaments this season, um, at least like three different cities. Um, and I will say, I mean... Uh, not to make you too jealous, Ben, but in-person is truly just unparalleled. I mean, I spent like the past year competing on Zoom, just like everyone else. This is, you know, my last year competing and I am so happy that we're back in person again. Um, you know, within reason, of course, like it's important to be safe and we always make sure to take our own precautions before we travel to each tournament. And I'm really happy to see that a lot of invites who are hosting are doing that as well and taking that responsibility upon themselves because I think that if you're going to, you know, take on the responsibility of hosting a tournament like this, it's important to take on the responsibility of also making sure that it's safe too. And it's really nice to see that people are taking that responsibility very seriously. And on a lighter note, I will say that, I mean, I got to be honest, like I tried to convince myself in the past virtual season that like I was having fun doing it and that it was so great. And like it was in the moment when I was doing it, I did enjoy competing because any competition is better than no competition. And I really did enjoy the virtual season as it was happening. But now that I'm back in person again, I mean, for me, there's just no comparison. Like there's nothing that compares to sitting in the courtroom walking around the room, feeling the energy in the room, presenting to actual people instead of like a computer screen, being on during the round, getting to travel with my team. I mean, I was one of the few people in my program last year who was at home during the pandemic. I didn't come back to campus. So it's actually my first year meeting a lot of the people who are on the team that we took last year. And so that's been a great experience too. And just like, it makes your team a lot closer and it's just a lot more of an enjoyable experience overall. So I, for one, am so thrilled that we're back to in-person, at least in some capacity. And um, I do hope that, you know, AMTA tournaments in the future continue to be in-person like regionals, orcs and things like that. Um, because it it really is just like an invaluable experience. I think that I'm really happy that we have that option again, at least now that things are safer. So, Ria, I'd love if you could take us through for for all of our listeners, what were the precautions that you guys took as Emory hosting that first in-person tournament? And have there been any other precautions that you've seen other tournaments take? Um, Just give us kind of a sense of what what it's like experiencing these in-person tournaments. I assume it's not completely back to normal. Um, And what, what limitations have you noticed so far? Yeah, of course. So that's a good question. I think that it varies from tournament to tournament. And it also varies, I think, depending on what school you go to and what their regulations are. Like there's some regulations that we weren't allowed to enforce because of Emory's regulations. Um, but at least for the regulations we have for Peach Bowl, it was sort of, we put a lot of thought into figuring out like how much do we want to crier and, you know, how exactly do we implement that? Because we didn't really have anything else to compare it to since we were the first ones hosting. For our regulations, we made sure to have every single person competing submit either proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. And we also required masks at all times during the tournament. So during, you know, 
while you were just in the courthouse, while you were around the courthouse, but also while you were presenting during the round. And I think that's important to note because I remember like this discussion being had before, you know, the in-person season was happening. And like a lot of people were wondering like how much will masks like impact performance? Is it going to be really difficult to present and deliver and speak and emote and all of that stuff when you're, you know, wearing a mask? Can you even do that stuff? Having been in, I guess, like three in-person tournaments now, I've worn a mask for all of them at all times during the tournament. I don't think it makes any difference at all. Like, I, I really don't think that it would it impedes performance in the way that people thought it would. And I think that most people who have competed in in-person tournaments by now would say the same exact thing. Um, it really doesn't make a difference. The whole, like, projection issue, speaking issue, emoting issue is just not there. And I, I was one of the people who thought like, oh, this might be a little bit difficult, but it, it just really like isn't an issue, which is a, which should be like, you know, a good sign for hosting in-person things in the future. It's like one less thing to worry about and one more safety precaution that is like not sort of like a hindrance to people actually like enjoying the competitive experience, which is a really good thing. Um, but yeah, I've seen other tournaments take even, you know, stricter regulations than us. Like I know Tobacco Road Duke's tournament is requiring, you know, the same proof of vaccination from everyone. Um and things like that, because that's what their university allows them to do, which is excellent. Um, so I've definitely seen a lot of tournaments taking different approaches. But the one common thing I guess I've seen, and at least all the tournaments that I've been, is most people are masking at all times during, you know, the round, which is which is really nice to see. You know, it's interesting that you brought up the, uh, the you know, concerns people had with wearing masks during mock trial, because I'll say that you know, I definitely share them. I mean, I can tell you that from teaching when wearing a mask like i i felt like i wasn't able to convey the same emotion or or you know enthusiasm the way that you can without one so i'm i'm definitely intrigued that ria that your experience has been otherwise that you feel like it really doesn't impede performance that much um i think in particular i would love to press you on the emoting side do you feel like people are really able to convey emotion the same way with a mask on and i guess my I'm kind of obviously asking this with a questioning tone, but I'm I'm curious as to whether whether that emotion is having is people are having to be creative about showing it differently, or whether you think it really is just readable through a mask. And maybe to that extent, like, does what type of mask you're wearing make a difference? I mean, I think that you know there's some cloth masks that you know really can kind of be form fitting almost to your face. And there are, you know, the N95s that are kind of have that little, like, like I always call it the little beak where it looks like it's got a little point to it where you're literally going to see no movement um, on it. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious what, what your thoughts are on that, Ria. Yeah, for sure. So I really don't think it makes a difference. Like, like I think that when you emote in person, we almost, like, I think put too much weight into, like, what the lower half of your face can give you in that sense. Like, that's a really weird, of like, way of putting it. But I think that at least when I've seen people competing, like, like I've seen, you know, sad witnesses and they still sound sad when they're wearing a mask. They still look sad when they're wearing a mask as opposed to, like, when they're not wearing one. And, like, you can maybe, like, see their mouth more. But, like, it doesn't – I don't think it makes a huge difference. I think that for me, like, when you emote, the most – important part of emoting is like in your eyes and your eyebrows which are not covered by your mask and I think like 80% of emotion is in like the upper half of your face anyway so it doesn't really matter what you do with like your mouth as for like the projection issues I mean yeah that's valid like I think I've heard some people who have like thicker masks maybe where their voice gets a little bit muffled sometimes when they're speaking 
personally, I just have like a normal N95 mask that I've been using for all my rounds. It's like the same one that I wear just around campus. I really didn't put a lot of thought into like the kind of mask that I got. Maybe like I should have put more thought into it, but I, I just didn't. I, I've been competing pretty much the same way that I've always been competing, at least, you know, prior to Zoom. I've been doing the same stuff that I did in person. I didn't have to change the way that I emoted. Um, I, I really, you know, I didn't instruct any of my com- the people on my team to like, you know, do more stuff with their face or anything like that. They're all sort of just competing the same way under the same advice that I guess I would give them if they were competing in person. And it doesn't really seem to make a difference. I think part of that is because everyone is wearing a mask. So you're not comparing it to like, oh, what does one person look like without a mask and one person look like with a mask? Oh, the person without a mask is, I can see their emotion more. And so they score better because everyone is like really doing a good job of complying with the mask mandates for the tournaments that have them. And at least all the tournaments I've been at have had them. Um, so, I mean, it, I think that because it's all like the same baseline, then there's not really an issue. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, like, that's all just to say that I, I really don't think it makes a difference. Maybe if some teams were wearing them and some teams weren't, we'd see, like, a difference in scores. I should certainly hope that that's not an issue because I think that that's, you know, not the most fair situation for teams who are competing with maybe high-risk individuals. But at the very least, from my perspective, like, I don't think it's made a difference. I've, I've had, like, I, I've seen plenty of rounds by this point in person and no judge has ever made a comment on it. Um, so like, I, I really don't think that it's going to be an issue moving forward or, you know, if we do compete later on in the AMTA season, I don't think it'll be an issue at AMTA tournaments either if those are in person. So it's interesting to hear you say all that, Rhea. I, I think I obviously have not been to any in-person tournaments or virtual tournaments really. Um, and I haven't been competing clearly, but I, I will say that I was talking to a judge recently. I've been helping to run Black Squirrels tournament, and part of that is recruiting judges, obviously. So I've been talking to a bunch of them. And I was talking to a judge, and he had just been judging at an in-person tournament. And he actually said to me, he was like, is yours in-person or virtual? And I said, oh, ours can be virtual. And he said, okay, cool, then I'll do it. And I, I was asking, I was kind of curious, you know, why, why didn't you want to do another in-person one? And what he said was to that point about projection, he was like, I just can't hear people very well through a mask. And granted, this was an an older judge, um, but I just, it is definitely interesting to me um, that, I mean, I'm, I'm glad, Rhea, that you've had such a positive experience with it so far and that you've seen such a positive side to it. And I hope that that's what we continue to see. Um, but I, I don't want to make less of the fact that I'm I'm confident that other people may have had a less than ideal experience with it. Um, And I I definitely, I'm hopeful that as we continue on, just like we improved with the virtual format, we can all begin to improve with how to, how to make this work wearing masks. And hopefully we can all get to the point that you're at Rhea, where it seems like it's no different at all. That's, that's awesome. I think that's definitely the goal and what we're all hoping for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely think like there's no, I mean, a world where we're like, we have to wear masks when we compete is not like optimal. <laughs> um, it's necessary, but it's definitely not like the best solution. Um, I guess my thing is like, I think as long as everyone does it, it won't be that bad. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely like better. I'm sure that people just like people did on Zoom, like finding like cool ways to like do like fun demos and make things really exciting. They'll find similar ways to adapt to like the new in-person world that we're competing in, which definitely has you know, substantial differences than what it used to be. Um, and as those adaptations come about, like, 
I, I'm sure that like, you know, well, people will end up finding like a solution that works for them. Um, it may be too early in the season to find something that works for everyone, but I'm sure that people will like, you know, adapt as they go along and find the best thing for their team. Yeah. That last point I think is a really, really good one that so much of, you know, the Amptis season is kind of unique in how long it is. Um, and, and innovation is very much the name of the game. If you look at what virtual mock trial looked like last October, or, you know, last, uh, you know, July when some of us were doing it trial by combat for the basically the first time versus what it looked like, you know, at the national championship, it was night and day. And that's because we have essentially a six month season for people to be able to innovate and figure out new ways of doing this. And I certainly think that that's going to be the case with going back to in-person mock trial. Uh, just there's so much. There's so much uncertainty, and we talked about it a little bit already about having so many students who uh, have not done this before. That's one of the things I'm going to be working on a lot this week as we get ready to go to Tufts is uh, teaching students who are traveling with this Unstack team who have never done in-person mock trial before. And as those students get used to it and as the people who have done it sort of re-get used to it, I do think that innovation is going to return. My one other thought before we move forward to our next topic is we talk a lot on this podcast about community. And I will give Amp to credit. Uh, and and Rhea specifically, I'll, I'll give you credit because you were very involved uh, last year in some of the events that Ampta did as a member of the advisory board to uh, you know sort of try to replicate a little bit of that community. But I am guessing, Rhea, since you've been to an in-person tournament, that there is very much just no substitute for the community and the camaraderie that comes from uh, this activity being in person. And the reason I say that is I have noticed students of mine who I think are people who, when we compete in person, they have friends on other teams. And there are people on other teams that they look forward to seeing and look forward to talking to. And I feel like those students have a little bit of a harshness right now where maybe they're uh, talking in a more mean way about the other team than I think they ordinarily would be if we were all in the courtroom for 45 minutes before the round getting to know each other a little bit and kind of having a chance to relax and exist in the same space or even just, you know, doing closing ceremonies together uh, and all getting to celebrate as a community. So I am really looking forward to obviously coaching in-person mock trial again, watching in-person mock trial again, but experiencing the community of in-person mock trial uh, because I think that that is kind of everything. I think, you know, obviously winning, losing, all of that stuff, but the community that comes from this, I think is more significant than those things. And I'm excited to, uh, for lack of a better phrasing, to kind of have it back. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Ben. I mean, the AMTA community is so important to me. It really is just because I think that you're so right when you say that there is, it's not even that there's no substitute for, for it in person. There's no substitute for a community like this one anywhere. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I know that this past weekend is actually a perfect example, even today. Like, um, I also have, you know, a lot of friends from other programs who I'm very fortunate to have. And I'm so happy that we're in this community where you can actually have friends from these other colleges and universities and you do this niche activity and you have so much to bond over. Some of my closest friends are from, you know, other mock trial teams from other schools, um, which is fantastic. And I got to see a lot of them again for the first time in person this weekend. 
Um, and just being able to see those people again when I hadn't for so long. And like, I, even this, like our fourth round, like Emery had a round against Harvard and I got to see Travis Harper on that team. Who's a very good friend of mine. And just, you know, being able to like have a round with each other and like chat the whole time and like just have fun with each other was just a really great experience. And I just know like an experience like that is not something I ever had on zoom, no matter, you know, whether or not I knew the other team, whether or not I was friends with people on the other team, it's just, there's just not really a substitute for it. And just the feeling of everyone being in the same room together, chatting with each other and just, I don't know, just, you know, like catching up and just being able to see your friends from other teams is there, there's really no substitute for it. So I think that is definitely, I guess, an underrated, I guess you could say, benefit of just being in person again. It's something that I missed, honestly, one of the most things I missed, uh, things I missed most uh, about in-person mock trial. I agree with all of that, and I am excited to record another episode sometime soon with some of those same experiences and getting to see coaches who I enjoy chatting with and and all of the sort of the fun chaos that comes with uh, in-person mock trial, like teaching people how to fill out ballots, which I'm, you know, maybe maybe that's the one thing I'm not looking forward to doing. Oh, Ben, you have no idea. (laughs) You have no idea. That's actually one of the biggest challenges about in-person mock trial. No one knows how to fill out a ballot. It's like a big challenge. (laughs) No, I believe you. I really believe you. Like, I, it was already hard to get students to fill them out when they already knew how. And they're just like, oh, nobody <laughs> wants to. Make the freshman do it. I'm like, yeah, but he won't write any of the names in the right places. So I need someone <laughs> else to do it. Um, but uh, let's move forward. Let's talk about the case for a few minutes. Uh, last uh, episode that Drew and I recorded was with Neil Shewitt. Case had just come out. We've now gotten uh, a couple of tournaments worth of data. Uh, I'm not on analytics anymore, so I don't have like any of the fun data, but I've just been keeping an eye on things. And uh, I'm super intrigued by how this case is playing so far. And uh, Ria, I'll kick this thought to you uh, with a thought of my own, which is the one thing I've noticed about this case. I, I think it's it's playing pretty even so far. I don't feel like one side has a giant advantage or anything like that. I will say, at least at Charm City, and I feel like this has been consistent with what we've seen at at all the tournaments we've gone to, uh, not a lot of people so far are calling Weber, uh, you know, the arson expert on the prosecution. And that is really interesting to me. I understand why, because there's that stipulation that kind of does the legwork for them, kind of locks the defense into certain theories, can't do certain theories. But I'm just really intrigued because I feel like experts play such a huge role in AMTA. And I understand there are like other experts. There's the psychologist and there's, you know, sort of a nominal expert in Detective Khan. But having a lot of trials without sort of a forensic style expert is really interesting to me. And I will be fascinated to see how that trend plays out as the season goes forward. Yeah, I agree. That's what I've been seeing too. We actually did like some case call stats for Peach Bowl when we hosted. And I think like something like 30% of the teams that were at Peach Bowl called Weber. It was like a 2016 term, 2016 tournament. So, I mean, make of that what you will, but it's relatively low. Um, I can't say I'm too surprised, to be honest. I mean, I think that, yes, like, number one, because of stipulation, it makes sense why a lot of teams would call Weber because the stipulation basically says, in my mind, everything that Weber would say. But honestly, like, I think Syed is, like, a really, really good D-expert. And I also think a lot of teams might, not call Weber just from like a gamesmanship perspective of even no matter how good you can make Weber, Syed is better. And that was so interesting. There was one really interesting stat that came out of Peach Bowl when we did the call stats for it. And it was something like 70% of the teams that are, or 
yeah, 70%, uh, oh wait, no, it, it was actually all the teams that called Syed. So like 30% of the teams called Weber. That means that 30% of the teams called Syed. And of those 30% of the teams that called Syed, I think that the stat was something like 70% of them won their rounds, which is pretty insane. I mean, that was mm-hmm. like by far the highest stat that we had. And granted, this is just one invite. Don't, you know, take too much from it. It was the first invite of the season that was in person. So that, you know, shouldn't say a lot about the trend of where the case might go. But aside from that, that's still pretty crazy. And it definitely stands out to me. I just think that, you know, because you have all of that, I don't see you gaining a lot from calling Weber um, other than, you know, the fact that it's, it is nice to have like a forensic expert to actually talk about the fire since the case is a fire. But there's that reason. And I think also teams don't want to call two experts and it's a lot easier to talk about the money motive and stuff if you call Khan as an expert. So I think people are making the conscious choice to like choose money over fire and then go the Khan route instead of the Weber route. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that analysis. I think, you know, I, so I'm looking at the um, Charm City stats here. Uh, and over the course of, we were a 22-team tournament. Uh, so I think that would have been, uh, what, 44 rounds. Uh, and there were 10 rounds that called Weber. So I think that's a little under 25% at our tournament. So it was definitely uh, pretty, pretty low. Uh, I will say as someone who really believes very strongly in sort of the, the power of expert witnesses, I I expect that to rise as the season goes on, especially as more programs stack, you know, not to like give away the ghost here or anything, but uh, my guess is when we stack, there's a pretty good chance that we'll call Weber just because I think experts are an opportunity to do the expert better than the other team. Uh, and And I just feel like, more of the top teams as they get together and realize, okay, we've got someone who for two years has crushed it as an expert and maybe they don't really fit the profile of a detective. You know, it's like, I understand they're, they're a white collar detective, but they're still, you know, a detective. And it's like, maybe this person, we conceivably see them as an arson expert, but not a detective. I feel like a lot of teams have someone like that. And it'll be interesting to see how they deploy that person. Because uh, theoretically, right, say if you just put that person on Syed, they might never go or they might, they might go in, in only one trial. And, and that sort of affects how you plan for things. But I agree with all the analysis you said, though, Rhea. And I what I am most intrigued by from a storytelling perspective as this case goes on, um, and then we can kind of move on to talk about what the rest of the season is going to look like. But I am intrigued by, you know, I feel like I haven't seen a team yet who has just really mastered the story. Uh, there's some teams that have told a very compelling story. I think at times we've told a pretty compelling story, but the great mock trial rounds, the rounds that I think are really just truly remarkable are when both teams have a really remarkable story. And this case gives you a lot of opportunities for that. And so I'm fascinated to see, okay, who's the first team that finds the right path through the prosecution case that successfully is convincing while also being powerful. Because uh, this case definitely has an underlying power to it because it's it's a very sort of emotional story and also a very compelling story. Uh, and so I'm fascinated to see how teams find their lanes and everyone plays their different styles all across the country to be able to tell that story. And I'm just excited to start seeing this case play out in person uh, very, very soon. Well, you heard it here first, folks. You've got a little lens into the UMBCA call now. So hopefully that was worth listening to this podcast. 
Um, but I, I just to take what, what we were just discussing, I think it's so interesting hearing this discussion along these experts and whether to call them or not to, because I think it lends to this bigger discussion about what is your goal when you are preparing a case. I mean, to Ben, what you were just saying about building that story, right? It's a lot easier as a prosecution to have an extra witness and this amazing stipulation if you want to tell your story. I mean, from a pure storytelling perspective, then that's not an issue anymore. And you have just one more witness there to help tell that story. Um, and I think that it's interesting because if this was really about winning the like winning the trial, no one in the right mind would call the expert because why would you call an expert when you could get a stipulation? I mean, like obviously the stipulation is better, but this isn't real life. This is mock trial. And to Ben's point, sometimes it is about what you think your personnel will score better with. And I think that you're totally right, Ben, to point out that a lot of programs, I think most programs have been used to this is our expert person. They play an expert every single time, and that is what they do. And I remember that we've had cases, you know, going back the last few years, where the only real expert you get is like a cop or something like that. And I remember it being very debilitating for teams to kind of adapt to that, and and you kind of push your your traditional expert to try to play a cop. And some teams made it work. Other teams struggled with it a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily think that they are one in the same, um, and a, a cop and a you know traditional forensic expert. Um, so it's it is this really interesting question of what is best for your team. Is it a, really all about telling the story, or is it maybe more about how can you earn more points? And I think that that's kind of a question that has always lingered in in the minds of you know people trying to design a mock trial case. I will still, you know, I remember back when I used to compete, there would be teams I would go against that I was like, that just was not even beginning to be like proving anything beyond a reasonable doubt. It's it's a joke that they think this could possibly win any case. And yet they would score really well because each individual witness was compelling. Each speech had its compelling moments. And even though I thought it was total BS and thought it made no sense and didn't think that it was clear and coherent at all, they maybe lost a point or two on the closing for that, and the rest of their points just won out for them. So it is kind of an interesting game analysis of, you know, where do you think you're going to earn your points? Where do you think you're going to earn them most? And maybe you take a, you know, a risk and call the expert and say, hey, I think that we can out-expert them, basically. So it, it is this interesting question. And I, I guess I'll throw it back to you guys with this question of, do you think that this case in general... You know, Ben, you were just talking about the emotion as well. Do you think that this case feels substantially different from our last uh, criminal case, which, like, you know, I, Ben, you were talking about the emotion. I mean, can it get more emotional than a mother pushing their child off a cliff or, you know, I guess mother or father or or they? But can it get more emotional than that? I mean, I feel like that was a very peak emotion, and yet – this is a fire. Like there's a lot to it. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering what you guys think about that comparing this case to past ones. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first and I'd be interested for Rhea's thoughts on this. I think this case compares pretty evenly to Ryder. The, the, the emotion points are different, obviously like in Ryder, it was a child. In this case, it's a firefighter. And I feel like 
from just the notion of like telling a story based on ethos, they occupy a similar layer of sort of like the blameless members of society, right? Children are children. Firefighters are people who risk their own lives to save ours. And so, you know, obviously there's, there's a nuanced difference in that, of course, Ryder was on trial for, you know, depending on the charge deliberately or sort of indirectly killing their child. Whereas obviously uh, Sutcliffe's goal one way or the other was not to kill a firefighter, but they took, you know, exceptionally reckless actions that could lead to that. So I think that storytelling component is very similar, but I am most interested in, from a storytelling perspective, what is the setting? What is the scene? Because I think that impacts what characters can you run? How funny can you be? You know, this similar to Drew and I, we talked about this two years ago um, with Ryder. I think we even asked Neil about it. You know, like, how do you be funny? A lot of teams pulled it off. It was not easy, but a lot of teams pulled it off. And I think teams are figuring that out right now. Okay, how do you how do you run comedy in a case where a firefighter died? Uh, and we're dealing with with you know an arson investigation. So I feel like it compares similarly in a lot of, in a lot of ways to Ryder, and I'm fascinated to see uh, how it evolves. And I've been talking for a while, so Ria, I'd be interested in your thoughts on how it's playing so far. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a big fan of this case. I've been wanting an arson case for ages, like so long. So I'm really happy that we finally have one. Um, I also I, I tend to agree. I think that it's sort of similar to Ryder. I think for me, the case is very different emotionally in the fact that this case just seems more real to me. Like, I buy the story a lot more. It seems like a case that could have really happened versus Ryder for me. And generally, like most, not just AMPA cases, but just mock trial cases in general are usually written in such a way that where, where to like write a good case, you have to make sort of a trade-off where some of the facts seem a little bit ridiculous or cartoonish or it just, you can tell that you're doing a fake case in a fake world where it doesn't really seem like, you know, there's stakes because some, sometimes the setting is just so unrealistic. Like a chimpanzee attacking somebody over chicken wings, like that, great case. But I mean, that's kind of weird. Like that's not a very realistic thing to picture in your mind as a real crime or a real attack that could have actually happened. And that's not a criminal case, but at least for Ryder, for me, it was a similar issue where it's like, all right, like this girl has like really brittle bones. And then like, that's how she, like she fell off a cliff and like her, I don't know, like it, sometimes like just the, the facts of the case and Ryder for me seemed a little bit so like just ridiculous that I, I like the note, like the cartoonish note that's like spells. I did it along the left-hand column. Like the evidence was great. I love, I really did love Ryder, but like, it just seemed a little bit ridiculous to me at times just with how like, just crazy the evidence was this case though for me feels very realistic and that's why I love it because I think that like all of the evidence some of the quotes maybe still have that like little bit of like all right Amta like I get what you're doing feel (laughs) but like the evidence itself like the fire insurance policy because very straightforward like this guy burned down his bar for insurance money um in fact it's actually really funny like there's a (laughs) you can read about this in the news there's a really similar crime going on at Emory right now there's a bar that is like there, there's an ongoing arson investigation at a bar near campus that everyone goes to very often. And the owners are being accused of burning down the bar for insurance money. So it's literally this case happening like 15 minutes away from my apartment, which is crazy. But it just goes to show you, like this case is actually a pretty good parallel of real life. Um, 
uh, that's why I like it. I think that because it feels more realistic and because like there is something different about like a firefighter dying, like a firefighter dying is like a child dying is tragic and it's hard to like, you know, make light of that. But a firefighter dying somehow feels more like bittersweet in a way. Like it's very like, this is someone who, you know, was trying to save other people and then he lost his life. And there's something about that is very like painful to listen to, I think. And so it's a little bit easier to tell that narrative in my mind. I think there's more you can do with it. Um, and the story itself is just, it just feels like something that could happen in real life and literally is happening down the street from us at Emory's campus. So, uh, I think I just, (laughs) I just like the story a little bit more for that reason in this case, as opposed to writer. Yeah. I, I, so I just want to echo that because it is really funny what you say about, I know Rhea, you've written cases before I've written cases before, and that is a major challenge when you're writing a case is like, how do you do something you want it to be interesting, right? It's like, I can have a hyper-realistic case, but, like, then it'll suck, you know? Like, then it won't be any fun. Exactly. Um, and this one, I think, does do a really nice job of striking a balance between, you know, yeah, there's some things that are a little bit silly here and there, but I think that it is a case that you can tell a compelling but not ridiculous story. You know, one of the points that you were kind of hinting at you know, some of the defenses that worked perfectly well in Ryder at times just felt really silly, you know, and clearly there were some things written into that case where it was like, oh, you know, this little girl with a with a brittle bone disease walked, you know, 40 miles in the dark or something. And it's like, OK, I, I understand I can say this in a compelling way and maybe score an eight or a nine. But, you know, it, it just it just felt kind of silly at points. So I like this case. I've said this a couple of times, so I won't repeat myself anymore, but I think it's going to evolve. I feel like not a lot of people are using uh, exhibits as much as they're going to be able to. There are some things hidden in the case that I think are going to come out uh, as people really get into it more. And to me, that's the best sign of a case. Uh, one of the cases that in 2017, when we made nationals for the first time, uh, and it was winter VTBD, I liked that case. I still have a soft spot for that case, but I don't think it evolved a ton. And I think the best cases are the ones where when you watch a high-end trial in October and you watch a high-end trial in March, they look completely different because both teams have completely redone their understanding of how to use this case. And that definitely feels to me like this year is going to be that way. I can't believe Rhea just knocked a case in which one of the most popular D themes was the chicken changed the chimp. I mean, come on. No, that wasn't a real. Oh, my God. You didn't see that? I feel oh like I God. saw that no, in every chimp. The chicken changed the chimp. I, I, I shouldn't. Oh I remember God. specifically <laughs> one team that did that, and I shouldn't call them out, but I want to. But, yeah, I, that was a popular thing. Oh, my goodness. What a case. Um, no, I mean, I think that the perspectives you both bring on this, I, I, you know, I think make a lot of sense. And while I'm – I think that I'm obviously always going to miss doing college mock trial and I will always have a soft spot for my nationals case that got us to nationals at least, which was the Hendricks case. And I will, you know, just always will love that one. Um, I think that I'm jealous. This sounds like such a fun one and I'm, I'm disappointed that, that I'm not getting to to do it as a competitor. It sounds like an awesome one to get to try. Um, I, I do want to kind of move us forward a little bit towards what like complications we kind of see moving forward in this world in which we, as we started off at the beginning, we have some online tournaments, some in-person tournaments, and what is the kind of 
merging of those two going to look like? And how is how is this all going to work out in the end? Are teams that have been doing online going to be at a huge disadvantage? Do we maybe think that, you know, is there a chance that AMTA changes their mind and makes a quick determination at the end of this and, and says all virtual, all in person at some point and everyone's taken totally off guard? I don't know. I'm doing exactly what Ben just asked me subtly not to do, which is asking 10 questions in one. But I will throw to the ether now. Um, what do we think? What's what's going to happen with all this stuff? Well, first of all, I will never say don't ask 10 questions at once, because if we ban that on the podcast, I have to stop hosting the podcast. But uh, I'll just say this really quick. I don't envy the position that AMTA is in. This is an extraordinarily challenging issue to approach. Uh, my understanding of where things are at right now, and to be clear, I have no inside information. I chat with people who are on the board. They don't tell me things about what's going on behind the scenes because they're sworn to secrecy by their board membership. And also because I think they know that if they do, it'll probably end up on the podcast. It's a blood um, oath or something like that, yeah. right? Like they're basically yeah. like entranced. And if they say anything like the, you know, demon of Chuggies bar is going to come and just take them or something like that. Yeah, they'll, they'll have to spend time in Des Moines, Iowa, and nobody wants to do this. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, I think that the plan, my understanding is the plan that was announced back at the board meeting is essentially still the plan, which is the goal is to have as many in-person regionals as possible, but there still will be virtual regionals to support uh, the teams that need that. I know, for example, if we carry a C team through, there's a very strong chance our C team will need to be virtual because we may have some people on that team who just for various reasons can't compete in person. Uh, and there are maybe other programs who are in similar boats, things like that. So I think it's definitely a little bit of a mess right now, and it's going to be an evolving process. I think there will be some regionals that feel like completely normal and in person and no masks and whatever. And then there may be some regionals that are not quite in you know normal, where there may be vaccine requirements or mask requirements, things like that. Um, the last thing I'll say is I do think one point of contention, uh, and this was discussed in the TAC meeting at the board meeting back in July, is, of course, uh, if all of the top teams are in person, uh, then those virtual regionals might not be able to be power balanced. And so I know one of the discussions was basically saying, we're going to have to assign some top teams who want to compete in person at regionals to virtual regionals. Uh, and I could definitely see that being a source of contention if you're a team that you know, you're in the top 50, you've spent tens of thousands of dollars to travel all over the country for the last three or four months. And then AMTA says, hey, your, you know, your regionals is going to be virtual. My guess is they'd at least try to make it a, a dialogue of some sort. But but I really don't know. And I think there's a lot of a lot of complicated questions that AMTA is likely in the process of trying to answer uh, as everything evolves. And we could continue to see cases go down or they could go back up during the winter. We really don't know. And I think it's going to be a fluid situation for the next couple months. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with all that. I mean, I really do not envy the position that AMP does in right now. I mean, they it's really difficult to make a decision like this one. I think that if AMTA does shift to all virtual regionals, it'll be because they have to. And so I don't think anyone is going to be at like a disadvantage per se, because it's one of those things where like, you don't have a choice in the matter. Like everyone is doing it because the public health situation at that point would have dictated that that is the necessary move as of now, assuming that we're in this like hybrid stage where some people are virtual, some people are in person. It's hard. I mean, I do think that depending on how the bid situation works or what AMTA decides, virtual teams could actually be at a really big disadvantage because I will say, like, 
if there's a world where there's no, what about virtual orcs? Like say there's virtual regionals, but no virtual orcs and everything is in person then, then it's, it's really hard to adapt to in person. I mean, just speaking from my own program's perspective, we have maybe like 2021 members, six of those people in total in the entire program, I think have competed in person before only three of those four of those people are seniors who have maybe two like two years of in-person experience the rest are saw are, are current juniors who have only had like three quarters of a year of in-person experience and they're all everyone thankfully is adapting well but it's i think a big part of that is because we're only competing in person so if there is a world where everyone all of a sudden has to formerly virtual teams have to adapt really quickly to an in-person regionals or an in-person orcs that's tough. Like it really is. I mean, I, just speaking for my team, like my fall team has, it is very, very small. And we have almost over half of my team as freshmen and they're all excellent and they're fantastic, but it's, it's difficult, you know, teaching them all this new stuff in person. And then on top of that, adding, you know, maybe you have an all sophomore and freshman team where none of them have competed in person before. And then what you have like a month to adapt. I mean, I'm confident that all of my first years are going to do excellent this season. But I think that a big part of that is because they've been practicing in person mock trial at this point for a decent amount of time. And if they hadn't been, I don't know that they'd be super prepared to go to a regionals on like two, three weeks notice or a month's notice or whatever it ends up being when Ampta makes the decision. And all of a sudden not to adjust to in-person mock trial after competing virtually. It's just a completely different thing. It requires so much prep in a way that I honestly didn't even remember how much prep it required until I started actually, you know, captaining a team again and training my new members. And it's just, it's a lot. And I do think it'll be really difficult for virtual teams to adjust. So I hope that AMTA figures out, you know, some sort of hybrid solution because as long as we're in a pandemic and we still are in a pandemic, there are going to be teams who need that extra virtual option. And, and I don't think it's, I don't think they necessarily should be disadvantaged because they need that option. It's better to have them compete in a different format than just completely close off the activity to some people, I think. So it's tough. I mean, I really don't, it's a really difficult situation, I think, for AMTA to be in, but I do think that it, it, it does pose real challenges for virtual teams who will have to compete in person in the future. I think all of that is is really valid. And, and I can tell you when I was in um, wherever the board meeting was, I'm blanking on Denver for the board meeting and was sitting in on some of these discussions that was brought up, this notion of, okay, well, we can't really have like one virtual orcs. At some point, we're going to have to go all one or the other. Uh, and I think that definitely is going to, represent a challenge and it's going to be really interesting to see how that uh is done i think the last thing that i'll mention that's going to be really challenging i I think it's extremely unlikely that we're going to go all virtual because number one i think most of if not the entire amta board shares the sentiment we all expressed earlier about really missing this activity being in person and so i think there will at least be parts of the country where it's possible uh to do things in person whether because of limited to no restrictions or, you know, declining numbers of cases, high vaccination rates, things like that. Uh, but what I think will be a tremendous challenge, and I, you know, along with everything else you mentioned, Rhea, do not envy the folks in Amta who have to do this, is things are going to be shifting on an individual team basis up until the night before any tournament that happens. You may very well have a team getting ready to head on the road for a in-person tournament and one of their team members in their pre-travel COVID test tests positive, and then all of a sudden they all have to quarantine, but it's week four of regionals. And so if they're going to compete, they've got to, in 14 hours, get added to a virtual 
uh, tournament, which might completely throw off the power balance, and they're probably not prepared for that and all of those things. Those are the types of individual situations that I think are really going to test the system and test the ability of AMTA to be able to adapt uh, to the challenges that we're all facing. Hopefully, you know, things continue to improve. And by the time we get around to January and February, that's becoming less of a concern. But those are those little things that we're really going to have to watch out for and be vigilant about. Uh, And I'll wrap this up and then Drew, I'll go to you so we can start to finish this episode up. But I will say, I was really encouraged, Rhea, by what you were saying earlier about how teams are uh, seemingly taking this responsibility seriously. One of the conversations that I had with someone recently, you know, we're traveling to Tufts this weekend and Tufts' tournament is on Halloween weekend. And we had a student who expressed concern about like, hey, the tournament's all vaccinated. That's great. Everyone's wearing a mask. That's great. But what do we do when everybody goes out and parties Saturday night because it's Halloween weekend and then things aren't safe? It's a fair question. It's a really fair question. And I think Tufts is doing a great job and other tournaments are doing a great job of emphasizing that collective responsibility. And that's something that we've got to carry forward. We've got to have a collective responsibility as a community to take each other's safety seriously uh, so that we can pull off the rest of this season. Uh, But Drew, you want to sort of take us to our last topic and then we can uh, wrap this episode up? No, I think that that's a great sentiment to sort of end that section on. Uh, Okay, so I want to end by... Both Ben and Riel, go to each of you individually. Uh, what is the team that you've seen that's been kind of the most surprising or the most impressive? Uh, obviously, it's been very limited so far. We haven't seen a ton of teams, but at the October stage, which is basically meaningless, but for fun, why not? What's your team to watch right now? And Ben, I'll go to you first, and then we'll wrap it up with Ria. I like that you said team singular, like I would ever pick just one team. Fair, um, fair. This, this is like when you asked me to use three words to describe the championship, and I think I used 35. Um, so I'll, I'll mention a couple uh, real quick. I actually think uh, our our guests program, Emery, is definitely one to keep an eye on. I think that Emery's had a lot of success uh, and I think will continue to have success and obviously did very, very well last season. So I have my eyes on Emery and continuing to see how they handle things. Uh, but I definitely think they're a team to watch. Uh, we've talked about this team before, but I'm going to mention Howard. They won Charm City. Uh, they're just so talented. They play a really unique style. Uh, and I just think one of these years, you know, they're usually at nationals. Last year, them not being at nationals was a surprise. I think one of these years, they're due for a really deep run uh, that could, you know, certainly get them through to nationals. I also think they're the type of team who could benefit from being back in person because they're such a compelling uh, and just powerful program. Uh, I'll mention my friends uh, about 20 minutes away at Stevenson. They've been having a lot of early season success so far. And I think that this could be the year that maybe they've got a shot at nationals, which could be really exciting. And then in terms of top programs, in terms of, you know, the teams at the very top, and I might be stealing Rhea's thunder here. So I'm not sure if this is a team that uh, Rhea was going to mention, or I forget one of the two of you was mentioning this team. But if you said to me right now, all right, put your money down, who's winning the national championship? I think I'd put it on Patrick Henry right now. No, Ben, you totally did steal my thunder. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you can you pretend that that you said it first. Uh, but they had, you know, what they had a second place team in their division, and their other team played us in round four last year. They're so good. They're so talented. Sue Johnson is such a fantastic director. So, uh, Ria, I'm going to kick it to you before I take any more of your teams. Uh, tell me more about that thought and tell us what you think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so. Uh, I'll give a few teams too. So uh, 
like a quick caveat, most of my teams are just based on who I've seen so far, which is mainly Southern teams. So I'm sure there's like a lot of fantastic teams in the North and on the West Coast and everywhere. I will not be able to speak about any of them because I have not seen any of them because um, I've only been to, you know, the really like Southern Invitationals this year. However, there are some fantastic programs in the South. I think for me, um, Florida State and UF have been doing really well so far. But what's surprising, not surprising, but I think really interesting to me about their type of success is it's not just like their top performing team that's doing successful. They have a lot of depth. Like I've seen their A and B teams both place at invitationals at the same tournaments, like, which is pretty incredible to, you know, especially this early in the season, like they have like multiple teams doing well at a lot of tournaments. I could say the same for Duke. I mean, Duke, I think is always a team to watch, but they've are another team that's been having a lot of program depth this year, like success on all fronts for all of their teams, not just like, you know, like their most advanced unstacked teams or anything like that. So I think those three are just really excellent teams to watch out for. Um, South Carolina has been doing really well too recently. Um, I think that this could be sort of like a breakout year for them where they, I mean, they've, they've always been doing well. And I guess breakout year is a little bit of a misnomer because they've, you know, been doing extremely well at nationals, but I think that this could be the year where like they really like break into like, you know, like upper half of like top five or like, you know, like upper half of like top 10 or something like that. Um, they've been doing really well so far, at least the invites that I've been at. Um, and then I guess I'll round it out with the one that Ben stole from me, Patrick Henry. <laughs> um, I will say, I, I, Patrick Henry blew me away. Like I watched them this weekend at Classic City. They did win Classic City. They were the only team to go eight and no. And I think the second place team got, I think that was Florida State and they went six and two. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what the result was. Um, they were phenomenal. I, I really have no words. I mean, it's been a really long time since I've seen an in-person round, I guess. But of all my time competing, the round that I saw Patrick Henry compete in might be one of the best performances that I've seen. And not just at an unsacked invite, like ever. And that's like a high bar. Like I don't say that for very many teams, but I mean, they were just phenomenal. It was a very different, and it's not that Patrick Henry has been like, you know, doing poorly in the past or anything. They're always phenomenal. But the Patrick Henry that I saw this past weekend was something very different than what I'm used to seeing from Patrick Henry um, in the best way possible. They've always been good, but this was just phenomenal I mean it was just they really like just went with it they were exciting they were really like fun to I my eyes were just like glued to the trial and I have such a terrible attention span that never happens for me um but they were just I mean I'd agree with you Ben like if my money's on anyone to win Nats at this point in the year my money would also be 100% on Patrick Henry they were amazing this past weekend that's that's a really interesting uh sort of report to hear doesn't surprise me in the least I think that their program uh, you know, they've always been over the last several years successful in Amta, but I feel like they've kind of reached new heights. Uh, I will say to sort of wrap up this portion of the discussion and, and bring us to the end that I think what happens this time of year, and it's probably happened every year as we host episodes around this time, is a lot of the tournaments that are happening this time of year, especially some of the bigger tournaments are like sort of east of the Mississippi. Uh, I remember we, the folks we've talked to on the West Coast, some of them are on different uh, cycles in terms of like the quarter system. Some of those tournaments don't happen until a little later. Things like uh, Berkeley's tournament or UCLA's tournament or, or some of those. Uh, and so I think as we start to get more results over the next couple of weeks, especially as presumably some of those teams travel for tournaments like Gamte, uh, we'll start to see some of those teams uh, show out a little bit. You know, I'm always fascinated to see how UCLA is going to do. They had a very successful year. Of course, they're losing uh, a trial by combat champion. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Berkeley, you know, 
I think some people felt like maybe underperformed a tiny bit at nationals given, you know, we had that conversation with Gerbeer before nationals last year and he, he and his team clearly very much had their eyes set on probably a better finish than where they ended up. Uh, but I feel like they're always going to be in the mix. There's so many other teams, you know, Chicago like starts a little later than everyone else, but then in a month or two, it's going to be like, Oh, Chicago's winning everything again. Uh, so I feel like this year things are very wide open especially as we head back to in-person with everything heading back to in-person, you know, how, who's that going to benefit? I, I really truly don't know. Is it going to be the Yales and Harvards of the world? Is it going to be, you know, the Emory's of the world, or is it going to be some of those West coast teams? I have no clue. I'm just excited to uh, get to be on the mics and talk about it. And because he will literally never say it himself, uh, you'd be crazy to not think the defending national champions are a team to watch. So that's going to be mine, and that's going to be the way that I can wrap this up in a fun, chummy way. I'll go ahead and agree with that point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rhea, thank you so much for joining us on the mics. And to all of our listeners, thanks for your patience. We know it's been a little while, but we are hoping to get another podcast up soon once we get a couple more results in. Um, And, you know, just keep refreshing that feed and hoping for some good luck, and hopefully we'll be there soon. So until next time, this has been the Mock Review with Ben and Drew.